My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. in an age of anger. Pick any cause and you can quickly find others who are ready to share your outrage. Then we have social media that is perfectly designed to fan the flames of outrage by providing easy access to others ready to nurse, rehearse, and retweet your chosen grievance. We have Twitter mobs and real mobs regularly demanding with seemingly righteous anger that a particular enemy be condemned and cast out. It's what we call cancel culture. And churches haven't escaped the outrage. Talk to any pastor and you'll hear stories, especially over the last couple of years of the pandemic of conflict after conflict and people angrily leaving the church for reasons both big and small. Anger has to do with enemies. We all have enemies, right? Enemies are a part of life. Sometimes they last for a lifetime. Others, times they are momentary. Now, I realize as soon as I say that every one of us has enemies, you may, you may object. You may say, I don't, I don't have enemies. And, you know, I, I probably don't I understand why you might think that way. You're much too nice to actually call somebody an enemy. But if I could monitor your automatic, visceral body responses, I could tell you who your enemy is in any given point in time. You see, we have an automated system in our bodies designed to recognize and to respond to real or perceived enemies. It's called our autonomic nervous system, if you're not aware of it, and it works something like this. You have your five senses, and your five senses are always on alert, and you have this part of your brain, it's right in the middle of your brain, it's a little gland-type part, it's called the amygdala. The amygdala senses danger using your senses, and it sends signals down your nervous system, down your spinal cord, uh, to a couple of glands that are at the top of your kidneys. They're called the adrenal glands, and the adrenal glands then secrete hormones into your bloodstream called cortisol, cortisol and adrenaline. And as a, re as a result of that, your body prepares for fight or flight. 
Your eyes, your pupils actually dilate so that you can see more. Your heart beats faster and your breathing gets more shallow to get, pump your blood basically full of oxygen. Uh, you're then, but the parts of your body that is not necessary for a fight, they go offline basically. You're like your digestive system. I mean, you don't need that at that point in time. And then the blood is prioritized to, out to your limbs so that you are ready for that fight. Again, it's what it's commonly called the fight-flight system. And it is a wonderful God-given process designed to protect you from enemies. So today I want to focus in on the fight part of the fight-flight system. We call it anger. And if you pay attention to your anger, whether it's the mild version where we might use words like annoyed or irritated or frustrated, or the intense version we might call rage, or you might say, I feel livid, or something like that. Pay attention to your anger at any point in time, and you can learn at that moment who you perceive as your enemy. Again, whether real or perceived. For example, how do you respond when your demanding, overbearing, unreasonable boss barges into your cubicle? Or how do you respond when that coworker blames you once again in front of the whole team for the problems in the project that you're working on? What happens inside of you when you have that neighbor who refuses to fix their dilapidated fence or stop their dog from barking at 6 a.m. every single morning? Never happened to me. <laughs> or let's get a little closer to home, literally. How do you respond when your husband or wife or your mom or dad or your child, they don't respond the way you want them to or need them to? Parents, what have you done in this season of rain that goes on and on and on when your kids incessantly whine and complain or say, I'm bored? How do you respond? How do you respond at church or in church people when you're in that small group and that same person every week dominates the discussion and the leader doesn't do anything about it? Or the pastor says something that, that offends you in their sermon? Now you may protest and say, that person's not really my enemy. And, and, and I just want you to know, at that point, your body doesn't care. Your body's going to do what it was designed to do. We need training to rightly conceive of enemies and to master that anger impulse. And thankfully, we have a story in our Bible reading this week. If you're reading through the Bible with us as a church, it'll come in your reading this week. And it helps us understand the moral dimensions of anger and how to respond with it. And it's interesting. It was written thousands of years ago, and yet it, has, it speaks into our cultural moment like it's a front-page story in the Oregonian. We call it the Old Testament book of Jonah. Now, if you grew up going to church, uh, you're familiar with at least the basic outline of the story of Jonah because it's a Sunday school favorite, and for good reason. It's a well-written story, and it has mythic qualities. And even if you didn't grow up going to church, and even if you don't know your Bible well, you likely know at least part of the story, especially that part involving a big fish, right? Because it's woven into our very cultural fabric as a people, the story revolves around a real person named Jonah who served as a prophet of God to the nation of Israel about 850 years before Christ. 
We don't learn much about the person of Jonah from the book itself, but we can place this person in the historical timeline of the nation of Israel uh, because his name is referenced in the book of 2 Kings. It's one of the historical books that we find in our Bibles. Also, you're going to be reading through that this week as well. In 2 Kings 14, we find this reference. Beginning in verse 23, Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, began to rule over Israel in the 15th year of the King Amaziah's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had led Israel to commit. Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Lebo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised, here we go, through Jonah son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So that's where we understand when Jonah lived and, and where he fit into the story of Israel. So this morning what I want to do is I'm going to quickly summarize Jonah's story. I'm going to basically, you know, count on the fact that you basically know the outline of the story. But then I want to focus in on how the story speaks to this topic this, of anger and enemies. So according to 2 Kings here, Jonah was a prophet to the people of Israel. And he spoke to the people of Israel on behalf of God. That's what prophets did. There's nothing unusual about that in the story. But the story in the book of Jonah begins with an interesting twist on that. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked the people are. Now, if you're not up on your ancient Near East history and geography, uh, you can know that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was a powerful nation to the east of Israel. And not only was this not Israel that God was calling Jonah to, to, go, to go speak to, it was one of Israel's most despised enemies. And Jonah was not at all pleased with God's assignment. In fact, he was so angry that rather than go to Nineveh, as God told him, he got a ship and headed as far as he could in the exact opposite direction of, from, from Nineveh. And you get this handy map here. I Googled it, you know, put it in Google Maps and all that came up. And not really, but, but it gives you an idea of Jonah's heading out in the exact opposite direction from where God had called him. Now, not long into his trip, the God caused a storm to rise up, a storm so violent that everyone on the ship thought they would die. And feeling desperate, the crew members on that ship, they were crying out to every God they could think of. And in the middle of all that, they, they actually confronted Jonah because he was down in the belly of the ship and he didn't seem at all concerned. And they brought him up on, and they're talking to him. And basically, Jonah, in the middle of that storm, led, led what we might call a come to Yahweh moment. Explaining, because Jonah led, Jonah explained to them that the God he served was master over all creation, including that storm at that time. And he advised them to throw him overboard, and then the seas would calm, and that would save them. I'm thinking maybe we wouldn't use that as an evangelistic strategy. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I'm going to be trying that one. But it worked, because they did that. He followed his instructions. They threw him overboard, and indeed the seas were calmed. And the change was so sudden and profound that the men actually devoted themselves to this Yahweh, this creator God that Jonah had told them about. It worked. So maybe, again, evangelism strategy, maybe. Meanwhile, in the story, as the story is most famous for, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. And all that happens in chapter 1 of our story. In chapter 2, Jonah himself has what we might call a come to Yahweh moment in the belly of that fish. 
And chapter 2 is basically his response. He, he, he wrote, which was common in that time period, he wrote a psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a wonderful psalm, uh, sharing through his experience and how he was turning and responding to God. That's chapter 2. And it ends with Jonah getting vomited up on the beach right back in Israel where he started. Chapter 3 begins where chapter 1 started with God saying, I want you to go to Nineveh and I have a word for you to give them. And this time Jonah decided he'd better follow through. And he did. And he gives that message about God's impending judgment on this city of Nineveh. But in a wonderful, unexpected, dramatic twist, those hated enemies of Israel actually responded to Jonah with sorrow and repentance. And chapter 3 ends with an unexpected and, quite frankly, loaded sentence. Verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they had done, in other words, turned, and that they, how they were going to put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. That's what, it's kind of a loaded sentence there. He changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. To the casual reader of the story, God changing his mind and not carrying out destruction of a city, I mean, that would be good news, right? But to Jonah... It was not good news. Chapter 4 begins with this dramatic sentence. He said, this change of plans, God's change of plans, greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. And why was Jonah angry? Well, he shares it. He shares it directly to God. It says in verse 2, it says, So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That, that is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. In other words, if, if that destruction will not happen, just take me now. And here we learn Jonah's motive for running away at the beginning of the story. He knew God's character. He knew God's character. He had a sense of what God was going to do, and he wanted no part of it. He wanted his enemy. He didn't want his enemies to, to, to get the benefit of God's qualities, of his compassion, his mercy, his loyal love. No. He wanted his enemies dead. And if they weren't going to die, I want to die. Now, before you criticize Jonah, you need to understand that if anyone deserved punishment as an enemy, it would be the Assyrians. They were unmatched in their cruelty. Just to give you some context, archaeologists have unearthed large stone panels from the ruins of Assyrian palaces depicting the aftermath of the conquest of other nations. Let me show you this picture here. Um, this, is, this, this is an enemy of the, of the Assyrians right here. You notice that, they, that, that, that he's been dismembered. And this other one over here has been dismembered. You see all these body parts around here. They dismembered they, they, they slowly and then notice the last thing they dismembered was the right hand so they could shake it. As he was dying. This next one depicts enemies being flayed alive, their skin being peeled off. The Assyrians were not only cruel, they delighted in their cruelty. Archaeologists have also found writings from Assyrian kings, like this one. It's 
king down here, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but he says, I built a pillar over his city gate, my enemy, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walked up within the pillar, I, I, I walled up within the pillar, and some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round the pillar. And I cut the limbs off the officers of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, their fingers, and many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to tree trunks round the city. Their young men and maidens I burned with fire. Those who survived these atrocities, they were taken back to the capital, Nineveh, and they were put to work as slaves building these palaces and monuments and things in the desert heat. Not, they, they didn't survive very long doing that. Now, even sitting here thousands of years later, we have a visceral response to seeing those pictures, to reading that story. When we're honest with ourselves, we, like Jonah, wish harm on such enemies, not compassion. I mean, in today's term, it would be like wishing compassion on Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden after the Twin Towers, or right now on Vladimir Putin and those others that are leading the destruction of Ukraine right? We want them dead. We want them to pay. Of course, these angry reactions don't only come when thinking about historical or geopolitical enemies. We feel it whenever we experience opposition to something we, find, we believe is important, vital to our sense of safety and security. On top of that, we have leaders and influencers who are skilled at manipulating our very visceral responses and, and, and how they, they use words to talk about and basically cast though anybody who disagrees with a particular position, they cast them as enemies. We see this in how quickly people use the term Nazi or fascist to describe people that disagree with them because we all know it's okay to hate Nazis or fascists or Assyrians. But that's not who God is, and that's not what God does. We see this in God's response to Jonah's anger. We find it in Jonah chapter 4, verse 4. It says, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Now, it's easy to, to read God's response as derogatory or maybe even sarcastic, but no, that doesn't fit with the description that Jonah just gave us about who God is, merciful, compassionate, loyal love. Rather than chastising Jonah, God is patiently welcoming him into an interaction, into a dialogue. And we see this through the rest of chapter 4. It's an interaction that revolves around anger, enemies, and justice. At a basic level, anger is for confronting enemies. And even more so for working for justice. That's what anger is for. So God's question in verse 4 gets to the heart of what justice is. So you're experiencing anger, Jonah. So how is that going to work for justice? And in fact, that phrasing here, is it right? In the Hebrew word behind that, another way to understand that is, is it accomplishing good? Okay, is your anger accomplishing good? Now, not good like in, hmm, that was a good sandwich. No, substantive good. Moral good, qualitative good. 
God is asking Jonah a rhetorical question meant to provoke Jonah to consider, is your anger accomplishing or working toward good? So anger is for bringing about justice. Justice accomplishes good. And goodness is a defining characteristic of who God is. We see this in one of the one of the big one of the most frequent invitations in all of the Old Testament. You see it in Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That is who he is, it's what he's like. His faithful love endures forever. This is who God is. He is good. And everything good in life is a reflection of God's good. And whenever we're working for good, for justice, we are working for God, whether we know it or not. So that's how we can understand anger. It's designed into us by God to seek the greatest good in a given situation, to seek justice. And yet because of sin... Our, our anger, human anger, rarely works for that. Our anger is kind of bent inward. And rather than seeking the greatest good in a situation, we're more likely to seek our good, my good. And that's why we find a statement in the New Testament letter from James, human anger does not produce the righteousness, or another translation for that word would be justice of God. Human anger does not. So if we are to understand justice... And how anger fits into that, we need to understand the difference between what, what we might call strict justice and what we might call God's justice. Okay, strict justice is cause and effect. It's transactional justice. You do what's right, you get rewarded. You do what's wrong, you get punished. Okay? This strict justice, it's hardwired into the fabric of the universe. It includes all the physical laws like gravity. You obey gravity, you'll do well. You disobey gravity, you're going to feel some pain. And if you think you can get around that, I invite you up to the roof and we'll give it a try. Okay, that's strict justice and it's hardwired into the universe. Now, we need to understand God's justice includes strict justice, absolutely. That's why we have warnings in the Bible like we find in Galatians. It's where he says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will harvest what you plant. You reap what you sow. Okay, that's hardwired. And God's justice includes it. But here's the thing. When it comes to enemies, we wish for them strict justice. We want them to get what they deserve, at least from our point of view. Jonah got mad at God and complained because he knew God sees justice differently. When it comes to God's justice, rather than his anger being front and center, no, God's justice, his mercy and compassion are front and center. You might think of, of anger as, as compassion and mercy in the front seat of the car and anger's in the back seat. It's there. You might think of the car as God's loyal love. That's what's most important. That's what's going on. That's God's anger. Now, again, Jonah knew this. In his description of God, he actually uses not one but two words for compassion, which are important for us to understand when it comes to God's justice. The first word is actually translated compassionate. And this is the big, this, this, this is the gentle, caring, we might think of enveloping kind of compassion. This is like the big, warm hug a parent gives a child after they hurt themselves. Okay? That's one part of God's compassion. But there's another Hebrew word that is also a compassion word, and it's translated eager to turn back. 
That's actually a compassion word. And this is the agonizing compassion that absorbs pain on behalf of others. This is the kind of compassion that sees the consequences of strict justice and says, I'll pay for that. I'll cover that. This is the kind of compassion a good parent offers a rebellious teenager. This is the kind of compassion God has for his enemies. So after the interaction between Jonah and God in chapter 4, God arranges a living metaphor for Jonah. Again, this this dialogue, this interaction, he's trying to help shape the moral dimensions of of Jonah in this situation. And so Jonah goes off and he finds a place to sulk and to nurse his grievances against God and against the Ninevites. He wants to see maybe maybe they are going to get destroyed after all. And, And this plant grows up over him and offers him shade from the hot desert sun. But then a worm comes and eats the plant and it dies. And Jonah gets even more angry as his head gets scorched, you know. You might think of him sitting out there bald getting all, at least that's how I think of him. And I know what it's like to have that happen. So he's angry even more. And God then responds to Jonah the same way he did earlier in the chapter. In verse 9 we see this. That God said to anger, is it right for you to be angry about the plant, that the plant died? Again, this is justice. Is it, is, it, is it okay? God then provides a searing explanation for his living metaphor and then asked a closing question. And that closing question is laden with irony. It says, then the Lord said, you feel sorry about a plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. I find that was interesting that that's thrown in there. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that's how the story ends, with an unanswered question, which is, again, great writing. That unanswered question provides rhetorical force meant to challenge us as readers to put ourselves into that question. My friends, we live in, an, in, in, a, in a world full of tragedy, injustice, and enemies, just like Jonah did. When God wants to display his mercy and compassion, he sends us into the tragedy, into the injustice, to bring good news of his mercy and compassion. Personally, I'm glad Jonah's story is in the Bible because it tells an honest account of a reluctant messenger. And I can relate to that because that's me. When I see injustice, when I see tragedy, when I see difficult things, you know, I am just as likely to head the other direction, especially when it involves my enemies or somebody I'm perceiving as an enemy at any any point in time. And so Jonah's story provides hope because God showed compassion to Jonah at the same time he was showing compassion through Jonah. We have that same opportunity. It's hard to honestly face anger and submit to God. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to respond to Jonah's story. I want you to, in in, in this way, so these these four parts to this. First of all, honestly examine your angry reactions. Okay, we have them. 
And in fact, I find a helpful like, discipline is every day is, is at the end of the day to kind of take some time prayerfully, invite God's spirit and go back through your day and follow the emotional arc of your day. And where you had some amazing things happen, praise God, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his loyal love endures forever, right? But where you are angry as well, pay attention and then ask the second question. Who, was, who is my enemy right now when I'm in anger right now or when I'm looking back through the day? Who was my enemy at that particular point in time? And then wrestle with God's rhetorical question. Is your anger accomplishing good? Or back there when you're reflecting, did your anger accomplish good? Wrestle with that. And then realign yourself and align yourself with God's ways, which are full of mercy and compassion. And, and then ask yourself, how might I show mercy in this situation? How might I go back to that situation that I was angry at earlier today and show mercy and compassion and loyal love? When I was preparing this message and I wrote out that invitation to reflect on anger and anger responses, I knew it would be appropriate for me to go first. And so I just want to get real and raw here for a few moments. You see, I regularly experience a visceral angry reaction, and it's especially strong this month for reasons that will become clear in a few moments. So I invite you to hear me. Please hear me as what I say through the lens of what we just learned about in Jonah's story. So for a long time now, I felt a personal call to, to teach on biblical sexuality. I firmly believe that following God's design for gender and sexuality is crucial for human flourishing. It's for our good. This means that it means that sexual expression is exclusively between in a, in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and it's designed to last a lifetime. This also means exploring, seeking the vitality, the beauty, the wonder of of human beings designed as uniquely male or uniquely female. God's design is good, and it's worth me devoting my life to. Pursuing and protecting, which means I'm fundamentally opposed to efforts redefining marriage, undermining gender and sexuality, which means my anger is easily aroused toward those advocating for boundaryless sexual expression, for gender fluidity, for alternative definitions of marriage. Which means I have people I viscerally, you know, bodily respond to as enemies. Which means I'm confronted with God's question to Jonah. Shane, is your anger accomplishing good? And the answer far more often than not is no. No. Which means... God, through Jonah, invites me to repent and to turn toward his merciful and compassionate ways. Now, this doesn't mean acquiescing or somehow changing our understanding, my understanding of what is good. It does mean courageously advocating for God's best and warning people about the dangers of us indulging sin. It also means extending gracious hospitality toward those who disagree. Because God makes no room for rejection or apathy or hate or condemnation. Now, this is not an invitation to pretend. No. This is an invitation to trust God even when we don't understand. 
We can know from Jonah's story that God is patient with our disobedience. He is kind in his correction. He welcomes our complaints. And he continuously invites us into his work of mercy and compassion. There's another group of people I'd like to speak to here today. Those of us, I mentioned, those of us who follow Jesus, we are to look to Jonah and to see ourselves as a sent one from God into toward enemies on behalf of God who's showing mercy and compassion. But maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're listening online and you're not a follower of Jesus. And there are a couple other characters or groups of characters in this story that, that maybe you can relate to. Maybe you can relate to the crew members on the ship. Maybe you look at your life and it's a shipwreck waiting to happen. And you're wondering, is there a God who can rescue me? Or maybe you're, you're, you can relate to the Ninevites. You know you're far from God. You know you're far from God's ways. And you need to hear from him. Whether, whichever you're into, you can hear the same message that the, that, the, that the sailors heard. You can hear the same message that the Ninevites heard. And it's a message uh, that, that is hopeful and yet contains a warning. The warning is clear. Strict justice exists. It does. And perfect obedience is required for strict justice to meet its demands. You reap what you sow. So the warning is clear. The hopeful message is also clear. That the God who created this universe, who owns justice, wants to extend mercy and compassion. It's available He's ready to forgive no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how long you've been gone. And when we hear and understand the story of Jonah, it makes sense that Jesus used the story of Jonah to explain why he came and what he did. In fact, from Jesus' words himself, we see in Matthew chapter 12 this, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be at the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. And then this sad warning, but you refuse to repent. You refuse to turn. My friends, someone greater than Jonah is here today. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish as part of God's plan of salvation for the people of Nineveh. That place of death in the belly of the fish became an unexpected place of deliverance and life, and so too with the tomb. Jesus died for your sins and mine, but he paid the penalty that we cannot pay. In order, and through his death, that's, he paid that penalty, but he rose from the dead. That place, that place of death became a place to offer life. You can receive God's compassion from Jesus, not only because he's alive today, but because he paid the penalty. It's already paid. All we need to do is to repent or to turn from our self-salvation efforts and respond to his invitation. Would you pray with me? And so, God, we, we hear the story of Jonah. We feel our responses. It's a fight-flight response. Maybe we're angry right now at something that was said. Maybe understandably so. Maybe I said something poorly and it needs to respond with anger. Maybe we're responding with fear and anxiety because, wow, I don't know what to do with that. And 
that you meet us in the middle of that and you meet us with mercy and compassion and loyal love every single time. So would you help us to receive that today, to turn from wherever we think we're going to get life and to return to you and to receive that love. I pray and hope in the name of Jesus. Amen.